Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. Amen. Well, welcome again to Vertical Life Church. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Tony, Aaron, Jocelyn, worship team. Uh, just a strong sense of the presence of the Lord here this morning, and it's such an honor and pleasure to gather with God's people each and every week. And so uh, I just appreciate that you're here. Uh, we are in week 27 of our journey through the scriptures. We started many, many, many weeks ago in the book of Genesis and are going through the Bible to discover what really is the greatest romance story that's ever been told, that's ever been written. And uh, we are now in the book of Numbers, and we'll be uh, around Numbers chapter 6. If you have your Bible with you, or uh, the verses will be on the screen, as well as the YouVersion Bible app, you can navigate to our live events uh, tab there and uh, follow along with the notes. But we are, we're calling this the great romance because of how God is pursuing our hearts and how he's been from the beginning pursuing the heart of his people. And in the book of Numbers, last week we discovered how God was preparing to do a miraculous move with this people, to take them not just out of slavery and to this, this moment where they encountered the physical presence of God on Sinai, but to take them into the promised land where he would, in miraculous fashion, defeat undefeatable foes and then give them the provision of the promise he's been promising them for many, many years, for generations. So God began to uh, prepare them for this move and not just to give them their own special land and legacy, but really to cultivate what God planned to do, ultimately leading to the birth of the Messiah and the salvation of all the world through this special people we call Israel. But before God could bring the provision for that miraculous move, God had to get his house in order. And we saw how he began to structure the people, organizing them into groups around the tabernacle and all the different things that he did to prepare them for this move. And we also saw how that mirrors how Jesus, as he was here as the true tabernacle of God, how he organized his people, the church, before they were ready for a miraculous move to go into Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth before God could bring the gospel to the world and how likewise we also if we want to experience a miraculous move in our lives how we too need to get our spiritual houses in order to come into alignment with God's will so that we can be a part of what God is doing and often our houses need to be broken down before God can move them and build them back up and sometimes we have to go through struggles and difficulties that really awaken us to the things in our lives that are preventing us from receiving and experiencing the blessings of God. And I'm so thankful for God's grace. Are you thankful for God's grace? Oh my goodness, have I needed it? Even this week, I've needed God's grace. God's grace is amazing. And it's because he doesn't just cast us away when we mess up or we make a mistake, but more so, he is engaged in the midst of our struggle. He is intimately working in the mess, in the madness, to bring about a miracle. He's refining us and preparing us to join him 
for this miraculous move. I believe God wants to do a miracle in everybody's life today. Everybody in this room, everybody uh, in the sound of my voice, either watching online or here in this room, needs a miracle in some area of their life. And I believe God wants to bring a miracle into your life today. And that's what he was doing in the life of Israel. In the midst of their wilderness struggle, he was doing miracles. And today, we're going to talk about the great trade-off. Somebody say trade-off. We're going to talk about the trade-off, what we can see really pictured as we look at what God is doing in the nation of Israel. Now, there's a popular game that uh, the kids today, I can say that because I'm almost, I, I've been joking, I just had a birthday, I'm 39 years old, one more year and I'm no longer in my youth, so I get to officially grow up next year, but, uh, but the, the kids today like to play this game called Would You Rather? Anybody even like that game, Would You Rather? Heard of that game, Would You Rather? So the premise of this game, if you're not familiar, is to choose between two options, like option A, option B, would you rather have X, Y, Z? So the top 10 of the 100, top 100, would you rather questions I've got listed here, and I'd, I'd like you to engage. I want you to play with me. I'm going to ask the question, and then you just all shout out at the same time what, what you'd rather. Okay, it's going to be kind of fun. So number one, would you rather go into the past and meet your ancestors or go into the future and meet your great-great-grandchildren? Me too. Awesome. Number two, would you rather have more time or more money? Time. I agree. Would you rather have a rewind button or a pause button on your life? Oh, it's rewind all the way for me. It's like do over, do over, do over. Would you rather be able to talk with the animals or speak all foreign languages? Well, see if you... Th like, if you want to talk, animals are, like, super basic. They're like, food, poop. That's, like, that's all you get. That's all you're going to get. So I, I'd speak the languages. Would you rather win the lottery or live twice as long? What if you won the lottery and die tomorrow? Like, like twice as long, twice as long. Come on. All right. Would you rather or would you feel worse if no one showed up to your wedding or to your funeral? Funeral, you're not even there. So, I mean, like, you're not even going to know that. But what does that say about you, right? You know, come on. Would you rather be without internet for a week or without your phone? For some, that's all in one, all in one device. Would you rather meet George Washington or the current president of the United States? George Washington, George Washington all the way. I mean, come on. Seriously kind of walked into that one all right would you rather lose your vision or your hearing what yeah somebody or it's already there number 10 would you rather work more hours per day but fewer days or work fewer days and more hours more hours and fewer days yeah i, I think i would agree to that so these are the top 10 questions now uh, we played this time and time in, in my household, and but when it comes to like when my boys ask me questions, they don't ask me these nice questions. They ask me the most compromising, like what in the heck type questions. Like for instance, would you rather 
be buck naked, dipped in a honey bucket, and, di and put in a life-size anthill? Or would you rather swim naked in a, a body of water with crocodiles with uh, like bacon ta like attached to you? It's like, it, it's like either one of those. I'm like, um, no. I'm just going to say neither. Uh, it's not what I'm going to do. That's, that's a no to both of those. You know, but so, you know, you can get some random and crazy questions, which would you rather? But beloved, the Christian life, this life that we live, is really a spiritual game of would you rather. Would you rather be accepted by the world, live for its successes and its pleasures, or consecrate yourself to the Lord through repenting of your sins, turning to Jesus in faith as your Lord and Savior, and dedicating your life to him. This is the ultimate decision. Would you rather? These are really the two options in life. We're going to see in the book of Numbers, chapter 6, is God is giving this proposition to the people of Israel. As he's beginning to get his house in order, he's doing it in a very unique way. As, as you begin to study and look at these first few chapters, in chapters 1 through 3, he's organizing the people. He's giving them their tasks, their instructions, grouping them together. In chapters 4 and 5, God deals with spiritual and social purity. Like if you sin against your neighbor, you have to pay them back plus 20%. Like it's not enough just to repay what was broken or, or what was harmed. You have to go above and beyond to restore and reconcile. He's giving them these instructions to help maintain purity and cohesion and unity in the camp, social purity. He, he talks about how to cleanse sicknesses and what to do if someone becomes unclean, even if there's marital suspicion, like you're suspicious that your spouse has been unfaithful in what to do. And not just to bring a, a judgment or discipline to the guilty party, but also how to exonerate the innocent if someone is innocent. He, he's kind of cultivating this, like, here's how you live as a righteous people. All the images of the covenant of God and even the relationship between Jesus and his bride can be found in these instructions. But then we move into chapter 6. And God begins to instruct about something that's never been mentioned before, he begins to instruct about the Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow. Now the word Nazarite means to be undressed, separate, consecrated, or a devoted one. It means to be consecrated before the Lord. To be completely undressed. No pretense. You're, as you are, completely devoted, dedicated to the Lord. In Numbers chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, it says, and then the Lord said to Moses, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. If any of the people, either men or women, take the special vow of a Nazarite, setting themselves apart to the Lord in a special way, they must give up wine or other alcoholic drinks. They must not use vinegar made from wine or from other alcoholic drinks. They must not drink fresh grape juice. They must not eat grapes or raisins. And as long as they are bound by their Nazarite vow, they're not allowed to eat or drink anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the grape seeds or skins. They must never cut their hair throughout the time of their vow, for they are holy and set apart to the Lord. 
Until the time of their vow has been fulfilled, they must let their hair grow long. They must not go near a dead body during the entire period of their vow to the Lord, even if the dead person is their own father, mother, brother, or sister. They must not defile themselves, for the hair on their head is the symbol of their separation to God. This is the requirement applies as long as they are set apart to the Lord. So out of nowhere, God says, hey, there's this thing called the Nazarite vow, and if someone takes this vow, here's what they are to do. Here are the things they are to commit to, the prohibitions to cutting the hair uh, and the other drinking wine or uh, um, eating the grape, going near dead bodies. These were all requirements. And what's interesting here is that these were also requirements for the high priest that would serve in the people's place in the tabernacle of God at different times. In Leviticus chapter 10, verses 8 and 11, it says, The Lord said to Aaron, the high priest, You and your descendants must never drink wine or any other alcoholic drink before going into the tabernacle. If you do, you will die. This is a permanent law for you. It must be observed from generation to generation. You must distinguish between what is sacred and what is common, between what is ceremonially unclean and what is clean. And you must teach the Israelites all the decrees that the Lord has given them through Moses. So God sets apart this special uh, tribe of Israel, the Levites, to be his priests. And out of the priests, he has a special family, the family of Aaron, to be the high priests. And they would be the ones that would go and offer the sacrifices for the people, like the Day of Atonement and the special sacrifices, absolving them from their sins. And before they could go into the tabernacle, they had to abstain from drinking any type of wine or alcoholic drink. They did this to keep from becoming ceremonially unclean. They, they also, if they came in contact with a dead body or someone that had an, a skin disorder, s- skin disease, they had special things that they had to do to wash themselves and procedures to keep themselves from being unclean before the Lord. Uh, they abstained from alcohol so they could discern between what is holy and what is unholy. Because God didn't want their mind, their faculties being affected when they were standing before the Lord. They had to discern between what was sacred and what was common and not be under the influence of anything other than the word of God and his Holy Spirit. And though God set his house in order, he set these priests apart for himself as a special people. The priests, the Levites themselves were camped around the tabernacle. We saw last week, no one but the priests could go near the tabernacle. That, that everyone else had to stay in their camps, had to stay where they were positioned. Only the priests could dwell around the presence of God. If a person who was not a priest desired to take this Nazarite vow, they would set themselves holy as unto the Lord. And though they weren't ordained for tabernacle ministry, they would be considered holy just as a priest was considered holy. They would take on that place in society that they would become and considered a priest before God for the length of their vow. And there were many reasons why they would take this vow and in researching like ancient uh, Hebrew uh, manners and customs, some would take this vow like fasting. We often have a decision that we have to make or we're asking God for something. We'll go into a season of fasting and prayer and we'll fast something before the Lord. They would do this. They would take a vow and during that time of, uh, of their vow, they would go to God petitioning for something like the birth of a child or something that was deeply on their heart. They would dedicate themselves. Uh, it could be after 
being found guilty or of suspicion of adultery. They could go into a vow so they could, rather being judged for their crime, they could offer a sin offering and be considered holy and consecrated before the Lord again. There, there are many different reasons why they would take this vow. But nonetheless, this vow that they took was a willingness to forego the social comforts like drinking wine and eating the delicacies of the fruit of the vine, from participating in the funerals even of loved ones, and from maintaining the social standard of beauty by keeping uncut hair. And they did this in an effort to pursue the heart of God for a time. They denied these things in order to set themselves apart, just as believers in Jesus are called to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. The believer's life is a consecrated life. And ultimately, they were choosing this or that. They were choosing continuing on the same or something new. Self-denial for God's favor. And God, being a gracious God, knowing the feebleness of man and often our inability to keep our promise, he built in provisions in these commands in case someone would inadvertently break the laws. In verse 9 in Numbers chapter 6, it says, If someone falls dead beside them and the hair they've dedicated will be defiled, they must wait seven days and then shave their head. And then they'll be cleansed from their defilement. On the eighth day, they must bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons to the priest at the entrance of the tabernacle. The priest will offer one of the birds for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. In this way, he will purify them from the guilt they incurred through contact with the dead body. Then they must reaffirm their commitment and let their hair begin to grow again. The days of their vow that were completed before their defilement no longer count. They must rededicate themselves to the Lord as a Nazarite for the full term of their vow, and each must bring a one-year-old male lamb for a guilt offering. What's amazing to me is that even though God says this must be done, if they compromised themselves, they weren't judged. They were given a second chance. They were given the chance to atone. They had to wait a week and then shave their heads, bring an offering on the eighth day, and then they were purified and cleansed. They could renew their vow before the Lord. And there's a mystery being revealed here about God's heart and the true purpose for these laws, in his grace and in his mercy. And what's interesting here is really the three vows that they have to take, these three components, abstaining from grapes, wine, and alcohol, avoiding dead bodies, and the prohibition of cutting their hair. Two of these prohibitions were things that were outside the body, the grapes and the dead. One was within the body in regarding the hair. We're going to look at these specific things and see the symbolism that God is communicating, what he's calling these consecrated ones to. The grape, it represents the fruitfulness of the land. In Genesis chapter 40, verse 10, uh, Joseph is in prison and uh, two of Pharaoh's servants are jailed. They both have dreams and Joseph interprets the dreams. And for one, the, the cupbearer in Genesis chapter 40, verse 10, his dream uh, has this. It says, the vine had three branches that began to bud and blossom and soon it produced a cluster of ripe grapes. You'll see all through scripture that grapes and clusters of grapes represents fruitfulness, represents blessing, a bounty. And this was part of the dream. Later in Numbers, uh, we'll see as the 12 spies go to spy out the land, they find that the land was bountiful and plenteous, 
and they find a cluster of grapes that they take back with them, and it was so large that it took two men to carry the cluster. It it's, uh, just represents fruitfulness and blessing. And just because you have sweet grapes ready to harvest, the grapes represent fruitfulness. Why did God tell them, do you think, not to touch the grape? Not to drink anything from the grape, like the juice or wine or alcohol. Not even to eat the skin or the seed. It's because just because you have sweet grapes ready to harvest, sometimes you also have sour grapes. Sometimes you have sour grapes on the cluster. And grapes that have not fully ripened can be extremely acidic and be sour. They can also be corrupted and enter the fermentation process. And often it's difficult to discern between the two, between a sour grape and a fresh grape. And one could inadvertently take a grape they thought was sweet and eat it and discover that it was actually sour. And sour grapes in the scripture are connected with corruption, with poison, with with a sin, uh, Psalm 69:21. this is a messianic prophecy when Jesus is on the cross and he says, I thirst, and they uh, put the, the sponge up to his mouth. And Psalm 69:21 says, instead, they gave me poison for food, and they offered me what? Sour, sour wine for my thirst. Sour wine made from sour grapes represents a toxic or corrupted food, not pleasant to the taste. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 2, the Ezekiel's quoting this, this um, idiom from the nation of Israel, this common saying. He says, why do you quote this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The parents have eaten sour grapes, but the children's mouths pucker at the taste. He's referring to sour grapes as being wickedness, sinfulness, but yet it's the children that are affected. We're talking about generational sin and how the parents eat the poison, but it affects the future generations, the consequences of their sinfulness. So a ripe grape is full of natural sugars, but on the, but on the skin, there are also natural yeasts. And if there's any compromise to the skin, that yeast will get in and begin the natural fermentation process. To make wine, really all a winemaker has to do is, is squeeze the juice out of the grape to gently crush them and release that sugary juice, exposing it to the yeast. So a compromised grape naturally enters this fermentation process, and if ingested, will introduce small traces of alcohol or wine into the body. Enough alcohol, and it can compromise your, your uh, mental faculties. So a priest who was dedicated to God was forbidden to partake in wine before entering his presence so he could rightly discern between holy and unholy things. These Nazarites were to live in a way that they considered themselves continually before the Lord. Continually before the Lord. Rejecting the worldly pleasures, the fruitfulness of the world, to live as if they were continually dwelling in the presence of the Lord while they carried out their vow. And Proverbs 21, 17, in regards to the, the grape and to wine, says those who love pleasure become poor. Those who love wine and luxury will never be rich. Those who are in pursuit of these worldly things. Proverbs 23, 29 through 32 says, Who has anguish? Who has sorrow? Who's always fighting? Who's always complaining? Who has unnecessary bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? It is the one who spends long hours in the taverns trying out new drinks. 
Don't gaze at the wine, seeing how red it is and how it sparkles in the cup, how smoothly it goes down. For in the end, it bites like a poisonous snake. It stings like a viper. Here in this Nazarite vow, this abstention from the grape, God is offering this would-you-rather scenario, this invitation to the Nazarite, dealing with what will we pursue, pleasure and luxury or the presence of God and his blessing. And all of this is represented in consuming the grape. Scripture over and again talks about how obsession with or abuse or misuse of alcohol compromises judgment, the destructive nature of addiction. The Nazarite sets, them, sets themselves apart, fulfilling their vow to be holy unto the Lord. And this is the same call Paul makes to the church of Jesus Christ in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. This is a very common verse. Paul says, don't be drunk with wine because it will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with what? The Holy Spirit. So the very direction of our life isn't to be intoxicated in the world. It's to be intoxicated in heaven, to be filled with God to the point that it determines, it influences every aspect of our life. And a believer's life is like one of a Nazarite, a consecrated life living continually in the presence of, the, of God because his spirit lives in us. Our lives should be one lived after holiness, not in pursuit of worldly pleasure and intoxication, but given to the Holy Spirit. The second thing they were to avoid were dead bodies. A dead body is not only ripe with bacteria. I mean, does, you, does anybody like see roadkill in the road and say, oh, that's a fun toy. Let's go play with that. No, we're like, Ugh, you know. No one likes to do that. Why? Because we know that the, what's associated with that. A dead body is ripe with bacteria and can be harmful. But death also represents the manifestation of the full power of sin over a person's life. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is what? It's death. So death is associated with the curse of sin. Intentionally surrounding yourself with death connects you to that curse. It represents the taint of the soul, ultimate judgment. Sin is also referred to as dead works. When you do something that's outside the will of God, it's a dead work. Why? Because it doesn't produce life in your life. It produces death. When you lie to a spouse, does that produce life in your relationship? No. It produces death in your relationship. When you cheat on a test, does that produce life at school? No. It produces death. The things that we do outside of God's will are dead works. And so death represents unrighteousness, judgment, sin. And God wants the Nazarite, the consecrated one, to separate between what is righteous and unrighteous, between judgment and redemption, between sin and salvation. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Whoever believes in Jesus will not perish but have everlasting life, Death has lost its power over the believer, which is why we don't fear death. Because we are destined for eternal life. We don't fear death. We're not mastered by it. Ultimately, because Jesus overcame the grave. Amen? Amen. Number three, do not cut your hair. When I'm reading through this, and, and I see this, don't cut your hair, sometimes you just have to ask God, God, what were you thinking? 
You know, some of the things that he has, because we didn't live back then, thousands of years ago, we're not real familiar with all the manners and customs going on, and we don't know all the symbolism. Sometimes you just kind of scratch your head and be like, I don't know why that's a thing. But, but what's awesome is you begin to dig in. God's understanding of what he created it far exceeds anything we'll even know. You know, one of the things I love to study is biblical archaeology. And the reason why is because all the scientists, the secular scientists, always tell us there's no evidence for the Bible. Those people don't exist. You'll never find that. And then what happens a few years later? We find it. We discover they existed over and over and over again. So many examples of that. But God says, do not cut your hair. What's the issue with hair? Well, something they may not have known at the time, and we've only recently discovered in our modern era. But what God has always known in his providence is that hair not only absorbs, but it also stores. What is in your bloodstream or in the environment around you is absorbed in your hair follicles, in your hair. In the case of alcohol, a person's hair can be used to trace whether or not they've consumed a drink. This is a common thing. You're probably trying out for a new job. You go to get a new job. You'll have to take a drug test. Often they take some of your hair to do a drug test. There are these markers, ETG and FAEE, are both direct markers of alcohol consumption and are only found when a person has consumed alcohol or increased blood levels in the body. They're absorbed into the hair through sweat and diffusion and contaminate the entire length of the hair. You can't segment it out. It's not like pulling your hair out and cutting it into pieces and be like, oh, here's, one, here's a piece I can give you that doesn't have anything in it. When your hair absorbs, it affects the entire strand. Have you ever walked into a, a restaurant or maybe some place where there's a lot of like really fragrant smells from the food or you go into like Subway's a lot like that. You walk into Subway and you smell their bread. Or maybe you go bowling, pre, pre all the laws against smoking, but you go somewhere where there was a lot of smoking. What does your hair smell like when you leave that place? Like it absorbs it. Like it absorbs the smell, and you feel like you got to go take a shower, right? It's because your hair absorbs. It also stores. In the case of a dead body, if you were to go around the dead, what is your hair going to do? It's going to absorb the fragrant smell of what you're around. In the case of alcohol, it's going to store what you've been consuming. It absorbs and it stores. And Jesus in the New Testament, referring to sin and corruption, he talks about the, bad the Pharisees' bad doctrine, bad teaching. He refers to yeast, and he says a little bit of yeast affects the whole batch of dough. Just a little bit of corruption affects the entire thing. And regarding the hair, what what happened is if you had a little bit of alcohol or you're around a dead body, even for a short time, you could have even just the smallest amount of corruption, but it would affect the entire strand. It would affect the entire thing. God, in his presence, demands no corruption, no trace, nothing. So what did he command? He commanded, if you were to be corrupted, if you were to fall prey, and you were to inadvertently break your vow, you were to wait for a period of time, for seven days. And at the end of that seven days, on the eighth day, you were to shave your head and start all over again. What was he doing? He was waiting for the hair to grow out long enough to be able to remove every trace of the corruption. And on the eighth day, 
they could begin again. It's also interesting, the number seven is the number of completion, and the number eight is the number of new birth. And so you remove all the corruption on the day of your new birth to begin your vow as consecrated to the Lord. No trace of corruption. What does the word tell us in 1 John 1, 9? He says if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Say it with me. And cleanse us of all unrighteousness, all wickedness. When we come to Christ and we consecrate ourselves before the Lord, we confess our sins, it's as if it had never happened. Complete cleansing. The power of the blood of Jesus and his sacrifice that he gave was a once and for all sacrifice sufficient to handle every mistake, every failure, every struggle, every rough patch, every misstep. And the moment we turn to him, just like the shaven head of the Nazarite, we become brand new. We become, we receive a fresh start. Paul says when we come to Christ, the first time we give our lives to him, we become altogether new, a new creation. Old things are past, all things have become new. All of our sin, every record against us, has already been taken care of. They wait seven days, and then on the eighth, they begin again. And so what do we do? We confess to God when we sin, when we make a mistake, when we inadvertently break our vow of consecration, which we're prone to do as, as we struggle in this life. What do we do? We come to God, and we ask God to forgive us of our sins. But it's not to atone for the sin that we've committed because it's already atoned for. The blood of Jesus has covered all sin for all time. This is, this is the miracle of the cross, that God isn't shocked when you make a mistake tomorrow. There's a, a comedian that once said, did it ever occur to you that nothing occurs to God? Nothing takes God by surprise. He'd be like, oh, whoa, where did that come from? You know, God's already seen it coming. He's seen every mistake in the blood of Jesus. When he cried out, it is finished, he literally meant it is finished. The record against you from birth to grave, it's cleansed, it's clear. So when you make a mistake, you're not confessing for atonement. You're confessing to clear your conscience so you can go boldly again to the throne of grace and find the mercy and help in time of need. So you can draw again. God is pulling you back. Grace pulls you in where you've been the entire time. The new birth, the, the new birth puts us in a specific place where we walk in this place of consecration, where we enjoy this special position in the Lord. After the purity laws, after the laws concerning the Nazarites, God seems to then interject a new thought. And this is this is just the brilliance of God, and we often miss it if we're just reading casually through the scripture. But he interjects a new thought. He changes this idea. And it's the second option really to the would you rather scenario. Do you want to live for worldly pleasure, worldly luxury, or consecrate yourself and be blessed by the Lord? That's the would you rather. That's the great trade-off. It's pleasure, luxury, success in the world, or it's consecration and blessing of the Lord. And God goes through all of these laws to help Israel maintain social order, peace with one another, purity in the camp, holiness before God, even though those who were not priests by birth invites them into the priesthood to dedicate themselves as priests before the Lord. 
They were not originally chosen to be priests, but they could live blessed like priests if they entered into this vow of consecration. He excluded no one in the opportunity to be blessed by God. He includes them through their passionate heart pursuit of God, accepting the trade-off, accepting living as I was to now living a new life, this life of consecration. And it has gospel ramifications because just as salvation was from the Jews, we were born outside of this special and unique family that God chose and chose for salvation. The Gentiles, all who live who are not of Jewish descent, were excluded from the saving uh, program of God until one day a man named Jesus came, lived a sinless life, gave his life on the cross, and opened the door of salvation to all mankind. And now, since Jesus has provided a way for us to be saved through consecrating ourselves, the consecration of our hearts through trusting in him, we who are not priests by royal birth have become a holy priesthood in Christ. We've become a holy priesthood through this consecration of our hearts. God does not exclude anyone from his blessing. Those who want to come to him and consecrate their hearts before the Lord will be blessed by God. And he opens the door to blessing through the purity and consecration for the Nazarites. And God is inviting those who are not priests into experience this reality of the priestly blessing. And we just sang a song that is the priestly blessing we're about to read. It is something I say at the end of every church service. Because it's that important. Number 622. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons to bless the people of Israel with this special blessing. Bless the people of Israel with this special blessing. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor and give you his peace. What does the consecrated life lead to? It leads to the blessing and favor of God. And there's three things that God says here. First is, may the Lord bless you and protect you. The word bless means to kneel in an act of adoration. That word protect means to guard and keep watch over. Number two, he says, may the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. What we miss in the translation is smile really means his face, his presence, or his countenance. And gracious means to shine or become light, as in the eyes of a faint person who begins to recover. So may he be gracious to you. It's not just a singular action. It's a progression uh, of light beginning to shine as if your eyes are beginning to recover and you can see more clearly and more clearly and more clearly to brighten up or be surrounded with splendid light. And number three, he says, may the Lord show you his favor and give you his peace. Show you literally means to lift up upon or bear up. Favor, again, is the same word for countenance and presence and peace means shalom. It is completeness, wholeness of mind, body, and soul where one lacks nothing. This blessing of the Lord in the literal sense is a call to God to kneel down in intimacy, to get on our level and pursue us in love, to guard and protect us, that his presence would not just begin to shine around us and illuminate our lives, 
not just to shine around you, but the very presence of God would fall upon you, would rest on your shoulders. And as God's presence rests on you, that you would come into perfect peace. Isaiah 26.3 is a promise of God. He says, you'll keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. God wants his people. He wants you wherever you are in the midst of your desert or your promised land to be filled with and kept in his perfect peace. And I want you to see how he finishes the blessing. Verse 27. He says, whenever Aaron and his sons bless the people of Israel in my name, I myself will bless them. God himself will bless them. When Aaron, the high priest, blesses the people. In the original language, it literally says, they shall put God's name upon the children. And when they put God's name upon the children, God himself will bless them. And beloved Jesus, our high priest, has put the name of God upon his children. John 1.12, it says, As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them who believe on his name. When you believed in Jesus, you became a child of God. You were adopted into his family. What happens when you're adopted into a family? You take on the name of that family. What happens when a bride marries a husband? She takes on the name of of her husband. When you gave your life to Jesus, you took on the name of the Lord. You also had within you illuminated the glory of God through the Holy Spirit who lives in you, whose power rests upon you as the Lord our God protects you and is near you in the most intimate way. And because the high priest has put the Lord's name on you, this is the divine trade-off. This is the trade-off. Would you rather take up the Lord on his offer or would you rather live for yourself and your own glory outside the blessing of God? What would you rather do? So you can dedicate yourself as holy to the Lord, seek after righteousness and be blessed. In Matthew 6.33, Jesus said, if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness all these things will be added to you. What things? Everything we need in life, anything that comes against our security, anything that causes anxiety, anything that, that breaks the peace, the shalom in our lives, those are the things God will give if we seek him first, his righteousness, and his kingdom. But the alternative is there. We can choose not to. What God's revealing in this blessing, he's Revealing a trade-off, either to be blessed or unblessed. The alternative in the trade-off is to seek the world for pleasure, security, and fulfillment. And the problem we see in this passage and throughout all of Scripture is that a little bit of sin corrupts the whole thing. A little bit of sin corrupts the whole thing. A little bit of alcohol corrupts the whole hair. A little bit of yeast corrupts the whole loaf. We can't have God's blessing and peace if we're still trying to live one foot into the world. Into another kingdom. Does that mean we can't drink alcohol? No. Later in the passage, they fulfill the vow. He says, you can go right back and, 
and, and have a drink. It's not the problem with the alcohol. It's the problem with our heart and what we pursue and what we give our lives over to. There's nothing inherently sinful about wine or cutting your hair or going to funerals. What it does mean is there needs to be a significant difference between intentionality and the direction our lives are taking and what is dominant in our focus, what we are pursuing most, either the heart of God or the highs of pleasure in the world. And God has already set us up to be blessed beyond measure. Ephesians 1.3 says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Every blessing God could possibly give already has your name on it. Already has your name on it. It's in Christ we have access to every blessing that the Father can bestow. Our access is simply limited by our devotion to the Lord. By our consecration. Now many Christians today have prayed a prayer to receive Jesus that included repenting of our sins and turning to trust in him as our Lord and Savior, but many still walk in their sins. We still have habits and pleasures that we haven't surrendered, and I believe one is because we believe the lie that God's trade-off isn't really worth it. Why do we still walk in the addiction? It's because we don't believe freedom is really worth it. Why are we still sleeping with our girlfriend or our boyfriend? It's because we don't think purity is really worth it. Why do we continue to do the things that we do? It's because we don't really believe God's way is worth it. But beloved, God has already prepared the blessing. In this blessing he's prepared, what do we see happen for those who commit themselves to the Lord, who live consecrated lives? It's not that you'll be perfect. You won't. We will always wrestle with this nature that causes us to inadvertently break our vow. But the grace of God is there so that though we may fall down seven times, we can get up again on the eighth for newness and refreshing. What does this blessing mean? It simply means that we will live to pursue the heart of God and we will not quench what the Spirit wants to do. We won't quench the blessings God wants to pour out. You see, you may not be called into the priesthood. You might not be called to be a pastor or a teacher or a minister. But you nonetheless are priests of God most high if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And when you consecrate yourself to the Lord, you live to walk in the Spirit. You not only can get back up again after you fall, but you can fulfill your vow. You can fulfill this calling God has on your life. Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes in this moment as we go into a time of prayer and response and the worship team begins to come. What we see in this passage in the great trade-off again is really the decision between two options. And beloved, what God wants to do today is he wants to bless you and keep you he wants his face to shine upon you and he wants to give you his peace. God wants to get into your bubble, into your personal space. He wants to kneel next to you in adoration and love. He wants to cleanse you afresh again, to wrap his powerful arms around you, to protect you, to watch over you. He wants to help make a miracle out of the mess that you've made. 
He wants his presence to fill you and surround you. He wants to come upon you in power so you can be his witness. He wants complete shalom for you in your mind, your body, and in your soul. He wants complete fulfillment in every circumstance. He wants you to be content wherever you are because of his work in your life. Even when trudging through uncharted territory, wandering through wilderness, going through difficult seasons, God wants his supernatural, indescribable peace to guard your heart and mind. You see, the consecrated life, it's one that is led by the Lord. In the wilderness, Israel followed the cloud by day, the fire by night. And sometimes life feels like we're walking through the wilderness and we're lucky if we have some shade by the cloud. And sometimes it's hard to see the light of the flame in the night. But the life that's led by the Lord is one who dwells in the favor and safety of Almighty God. That is true security. That is where you find your true peace when you realize it's not in your control, it's in His control, and we can rest in that. And maybe, just maybe, in this moment, you don't have that shalom peace in an area of your life. There's certain areas in your life that are still one foot out the door, one foot in the kingdom. Today, God is inviting you to a trade-off, to trade what the world has been offering you, what you've been indulging in, so that he can give you what only he can give, that he can bless you and keep you, that his face would shine upon you and give you his peace. The question today, beloved, is do you want to keep going the way you're going? Trusting in your own wisdom and in your own strength to handle your own problems to get the same results? Or do you want to see? Would you rather see what can happen when you commit yourself to the Lord, when you consecrate your life? You've given him your heart and you've given him your soul. You've given him your faith. Now, beloved, give him your life and see what God can do. The trade-off in choosing Jesus is always a win-win. Just as the Nazarites got a new hairstyle, you get a new life. And that's what he's inviting you into today. And maybe you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. There's never been a time in your life where you received that new life, where your sins were forgiven and you were made altogether new. That moment that just changes your life. It's hard to describe unless you've experienced it for yourself. I can remember driving in a car with a guy that showed up to a church I was working at one day who was just looking for a change of clothes, but the clothing closet was closed and snow was all over the ground and he had holes in his jeans and he had walked for a couple miles and I felt bad because we couldn't help him at that time. I didn't have a key and, and he was kind of disappointed and he was about to go home and I just felt the nudge of the Lord to give him a ride home and and, uh, and so I offered to drive him. He accepted. And I thought, well, here's a captive audience. We'll talk to him about Jesus. And we talked. He had some questions. And we got, finally got to his driveway. And I just felt the nudge of the Lord to say, you know what? Have you ever accepted Jesus as your Savior? And he said, no, I haven't. And I said, would you like to do that? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I would. And I was like, whoa, I didn't expect that. But I got to lead him in that prayer, knowing 
his story, knowing his struggles, his things that he wrestled with. His life wasn't perfect. It was broken down. But in that moment, he just knew he needed help. And he knew that Jesus could be the one to help him. And he prayed that prayer with me. And I'll never forget it. Because when we were done praying, we said amen. He looked at me and he said, wow, you can really feel it, can't you? And I'm like, yeah, you can. And I could feel it. And I wasn't even the one receiving Jesus. It's just the Spirit of God was in the room. And there was so much joy that was there. And I know that God wants to come into your life too. And right here in this moment, you can receive Jesus and you can encounter His presence in your life by placing your faith and trust in what He did for you on the cross, His death and resurrection. The blood that He shed, the body that was broken was done for you. Right now, if you want to experience that blessed life, it begins with giving Jesus your heart and mind. Whether you're online or in this room, I just invite you to pray this with me, a prayer from your heart to the Lord, and truly mean it. If you don't mean it, it doesn't matter. It's not in what we say. It's in what you intend. If you intend to give your heart to the Lord, God's going to do something in your life today. I believe it. I know it in the name of Jesus. But right now, God's going to do something. So you pray with me. You say, Father in heaven, Thank you for your love. I've made some mistakes. But today, I heard about your grace and your unfailing love. And I receive that today. Please forgive me of all my sins. And today, I give you my life. I trust in Jesus in his death and resurrection. And I commit today to consecrate my life to live for him. In Jesus' name. Every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around. God, I just pray for those here in this moment that called out to you and pray. God, I pray that right now as your spirit of God is unpacking his bags in their, their heart, that they'd be filled with your joy. And that those words would fall true. God, that you would bless them, that your face would shine upon them, that you'd fill them with your peace, and you'd do a marvelous work in their life right now. And God, as we go into a time of prayer, I just pray that we would respond to you, and we'd respond with what the Spirit of God is leading on our hearts. In Jesus' name. church we want to say thank you for listening if this ministry has blessed you in any way please consider making a tax deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give thank you and god bless